0: in this episode of the Bear Performance Podcast.
1: Prior to competition, or if you feel like you have low energy, utilizing higher salt solutions to boost blood value will give you the best performance enhancement you can get 10 to 20 times better than any type of performance enhancing supplement like beta alanine or beetroot juice. Salt solutions, if you get the concentration correctly and you consume it correctly, will let you vigorously exercise 10 to 20 times longer than any type of performant pre-workout would let you do.
0: Welcome back to another powerful episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bear, founder and CEO of Bear Performance Nutrition. Every week we bring you insightful stories, knowledge and inspiration to help you reach your full potential in life, fitness and business. If you enjoy the message we're promoting in this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on the platform you're listening to. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes that embody the Go One More Mindset. All right, today on the show, we have Dr. James D. Nicola Antonio. Welcome to the show, man.
1: Thanks for having me on, Nick.
0: Absolutely. So I've I've been diving deep into a lot of your content recently, and I just wrapped up. Like I was telling you, I finished your book, The Salt Fix and Win. Amazing content and, and very refreshing. And what I'd love to really dive deep into right from the start, giving context to your background and why you're talking about things you're talking about and bringing to life some of these very important concepts is one, what made you want to become a doctor And then two, when did you decide or realize that the experts got it wrong and the things that these other doctors or medical professionals that were practicing and preaching weren't necessarily correct? And why did you want to go against the grain and challenge that?
1: That's a great question. Um, Yeah. So I guess to just give you like a background of my credentials, I'm a doctor of pharmacy and a cardiovascular research scientist at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. Um, which is a very prestigious heart institute. And I do a lot of research there. I've published over 300 academic papers, mostly on nutrition, a lot focusing on hydration, electrolytes and and micronutrients. Um, But really, I mean, probably a lot of my passion on nutrition starts uh, from uh, as a child, I wrestled, ran cross country, um, did judo, did Kempo Karate, always kind of understood a little bit the importance of salt, but, but not to the extent, obviously, that I do now. Um, and, and sort of what got me interested in challenging the whole low salt paradigm is because as a, when I was a community pharmacist, this was probably over 10 years ago, um, my patients did not do well on low salt diets. Um, their doctor, if you go to the doctor's office and you have high blood pressure, the first thing they're going to tell you is just to cut your salt intake. Um, they don't actually, you know, typically try to delve in much more deeper than that. Um, and a lot of my patients would come to me and, and say that, you know, they don't f- feel good. Their exercise tolerance is terrible. They, A lot of them actually would pass out. When this actually happened to a few relatives of mine, too, where they would actually just collapse on a low salt diet because it just bottoms out your blood volume. And so... It wasn't matching, basically, the guidelines saying everyone should consume a low-salt diet. It was not matching the health of my patients. And so when I would push back um, and and they would go to their doctors and say they weren't doing well, and the doctor would say, okay, so start adding salt back to your diet, they would instantly feel so much better. You know, even people with atrial fibrillation, um, their AFib episodes would almost go completely away. So right then and there, I was like, okay, something's wrong here with the guidelines. And what's interesting is if you actually look at the level of evidence that's supporting these guidelines, like the American Heart Association, um, congestive heart failure guidelines telling these individuals to go on a low-salt diet, it's based on level evidence C, which is just expert opinion. Um, It's not based on like meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials in humans. So... I I started publishing a lot on this topic and and sort of started kind of pointing out the gaps in the in the evidence. And so it's not just the fact that the evidence does not suggest that this is correct. It's when you actually look at the real world population so much, so much harm you can see when people start cutting out their salt intake.
0: It's interesting. Like I was telling you because I I went to school for nutrition and I was studying nutrition between uh, the years of 2009 to 2013 at a university up in Western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. And when I went to school to study nutrition, I wanted to learn more about nutrition in terms of sports performance. And my expectations of going to college is that's what we were gonna learn about. When I got to school, I was was sadly mistaken that we were just gonna talk about nutrition in terms of disease, primarily diabetes and, and cardiovascular disease. And one of the things I identified very early on was, okay, these these uh, professors are telling me, stop eating red meat and reduce all the, the sodium or salt in your diet. And then I was looking at these professors who were severely overweight, who, as they're telling me this, are eating a bag of Doritos and drinking a Mountain Dew. And I thought, something doesn't match up here. And that's when I started diving into the research and and trying to find out more because I want to do to improve my health, my performance. And um, that's where I kind of had my eyes open to what is actually correct out there and, and what are we being told? And I think one of the big issues, and I think this is why your content is so refreshing is a lot of society is basing their opinions off of just headlines I mean social media, media, newspapers, magazines, headlines people can read a headline and they can make up their mind as to what that headline means and interpret it themselves. But when we have experts like yourself that are that are doing the research and uncovering what the actual truth is behind it, it's amazing to see what is actually accurate versus what is just headline,
1: yeah exactly, and I mean sort of like the the main reason why people blame salt for high blood pressure is they extrapolate hypertensives um, in, in the reductions in blood pressure off of that population to everybody and you really can't do that so if you look at the at the evidence only 20 percent of people with normal blood pressure are quote unquote salt sensitive in other words we'll see a significant reduction in blood pressure and only 30 percent of people with prehypertensive actually will get any type of clinically significant reduction in blood pressure when they lower their salt intake. Now I would argue that that reduction of blood pressure is actually harmful because you're just decreasing blood volume and you're dehydrating that person. That's not a good way to lower blood pressure. A good way to lower blood pressure is to improve like insulin sensitivity, improve the dilation of the, of the arteries, increase nitric oxide, like do it in a good way. Don't just dehydrate someone by putting them on a low salt diet. And we've I- Hyper focused on that surrogate marker, blood pressure. When again, I think it's actually harmful in a lot of people to getting a reduction in blood pressure on a low salt diet. And we forget of all the harms that happen. When you start consuming less than about one and a half teaspoons of salt per day or about 3000 milligrams of sodium, all of the stress hormones dramatically increase to try to retain that salt. So you have increases in all the artery stiffening hormones like renin, aldosterone, angiotensin II. The heart rate increasing hormones, noradrenaline, adrenaline, things we block with medications to prevent death and cardiovascular disease all dramatically go up, typically anywhere from two to tenfold. So, to think that a small reduction in blood pressure, which again is probably harmful, could offset all the increases in stress hormones, artery stiffening hormones, and insulin resistance dramatically goes up as well um, is beyond me. That's just myopically looking at one surrogate marker.
0: Well, I remember when I was just getting into nutrition, and this is probably in high school still. And I heard salt's bad, sodium's bad. And I remember going to the store and I would buy the the Mrs. Dash seasonings that were the sodium free ones. And then I remember it was one day, I added some, some salt to my pre-workout meal and I used to just always consume like rice and chicken and maybe some coconut oil before going to an hour before the gym. And I threw some salt on that meal one day and my performance in the gym was amazing. Like I had stronger muscular contractions. I felt better. I felt stronger. So I started doing that and experimenting with more salt in my diet and not trying to eliminate. Now, I like what you said in your book, The Salt Fix, where you talk about how we demonize the wrong white crystal. Can you dive deeper into that? I'm assuming that that white crystal is sugar.
1: Yeah, um you know, I've published a couple of papers on on that exact topic. And what I what I mean by that is that the true white crystal that chronically raises blood pressure in a significant harmful way, that damages the kidneys in a significant harmful way, that increases the risk of diabetes is refined sugar and not salt. Because Overconsuming refined sugar will chronically elevate glucose levels, which will pull water into the blood vessels and actually increase retention of fluids um, in the arteries and chronically elevate um, blood pressure, whereas that doesn't happen with sodium. You don't get chronically elevated levels of sodium. Your, Your body can basically adjust very quickly. And so it's really the sugar that's leading to retention of salt through the increases in insulin. So what ends up happening is if you were to just cut out the refined sugars and refined carbohydrates, your insulin levels would normalize and drop, and then you wouldn't overretain salt. So it's really not the salt that's the problem. It's the fact that most of us are overconsuming processed foods, high in refined carbs and sugar that's causing salt sensitivity.
0: So before a lot of processed foods were on the market and, and these refined sugars, were we seeing the issues in these diseases? or was the evolution of the disease when we started introducing these processed foods and then salt got the blame as a result of?
1: Yeah, 100%. So really the increase in sugar intake in the Western world, this is the UK, this is the United States, started increasing really early 1900s. I mean, we used to only consume like four pounds of sugar per person per year. In the early 1900s, which by like 1970 had gone up to about 150 pounds of sugar per person per year, salt intake remained the same. In fact, salt intake actually dropped during that time because prior to refrigeration, we had to use salt to actually preserve our food. So if you look back in, in Roman times, they, they would consume typically 25 grams of salt. A lot of the Scandinavian countries, which would preserve a lot of their herring and cod in salt, they consumed upwards of 100 grams of salt. And we only consume 10 grams of salt now because we have the advent of the refrigerator. So you actually had a decrease in salt intake during the time that you had an increase in cardiovascular events, um, all-cause mortality, hypertension, and things like that. And part of that is due to the increases in refined carbohydrates and sugars, because those dramatically increased from basically nothing to... 150 pounds of sugar and over a hundred pounds of flour per year.
0: So what, what is your dumbed down version of when you constantly hear people arguing that salt in the diet, high sodium diet causes high blood pressure. How do you get that message across to people without going too deep into the science of here's why you are incorrect?
1: Yeah. So I guess without getting too in, into the minutiae, salt is an essential mineral. If you don't get enough, um, that is much more harmful than getting too much because your body, your kidneys, and your body actually maintain salt balance. So trust your salt, um, basically taste receptors. We have um, we have numerous systems in the body that drive us to consume salt. Um, just like you know, if you think about it, like animals, they go, how do they inherently know to go to a salt that can consume it? It's controlled by the body. So I guess in a simple way, I would say, think of it like water. I, I wouldn't chronically restrict your water intake to lower your blood pressure. Your body knows how much water it needs through thirst. And the same thing with salt, the body knows how much salt it needs through it's what's called a salt thermostat.
0: So your body will, I mean, say, for example, you drink too much water, you excrete that, that water. You go to the bathroom. is it the same, same in a sense of salt is if you consume too much salt, your body has processes that will maintain homeostasis and excrete what it doesn't need. Exactly. So like, say for example, your diet, what does your salt intake look like? Do you add salt to meals? Do you supplement with electrolyte powders? Um, what can people do on a daily basis to get more salt in their diet other than just cracking salt over their breakfast, lunch, and dinner?
1: Yeah. So what people need to understand is when you stop consuming processed foods and you start eating whole nutritious foods, they're very low in salt and even more so than what we evolved on because we would have never consumed a piece of meat um, without consuming the the salty blood and the salty interstitial fluid. Like if you look at a pack of lions, their face is just covered in blood and salt, right? Um, We don't get that anymore. We just get basically a pure lean cut of meat so you have to add the salt back otherwise you're going to be consuming an extremely low amount of salt if you're eating fresh produce and lean cuts of meats so the easiest way to do that is to really use something like redmond real salt to salt your your food i also use some of their electrolyte powders too especially prior to performance i'll just put the powder in water and use that as a way to kind of boost my blood volume prior to exercise
0: kind of with that being said um I did want to kind of transition into hydration, electrolyte balance and specifically athletic performance. I mean, I'm big on electrolyte intake. I've, I've seen the benefit, you know, last year we did a big Ironman prep series on, on YouTube and we, we did a deep dive into how to improve performance, um, throughout the entire series. And one of the things we did is we did a set, uh, a sweat test. And I can't think of the the name of the company who we did it with, but I wore this patch on my arm essentially. And we did it multiple times throughout the series based off of different climates and temperatures because it was a six-month prep. And I would wear this patch on my arm and it would measure how much I was sweating. Uh, We took my weight before and after. It calculated how much uh, liquids I consumed during that training session. And it measured how much sodium I was losing throughout that session. And I think we realized that, I mean, this was probably the month of September, October here in Central Texas. So it was still really warm and humid and I was sweating a lot. But I think I was losing 2,500 milligrams of sodium during a training session. And that was an eye-opener for me of, holy crap, I'm losing so much. And if I'm not replenishing that, I'm just hurting my performance. So a lot of people think that hydration is is just drinking water, but it's so much more than that. What happens when we just drink water and we don't have enough of electrolytes, either in our food or in a supplement form. And we're just drinking, drinking, drinking.
1: Yeah, you're, you're right. Most people believe that hydration equals drink plain water. Unfortunately, actually drinking plain water can actually make things worse. Number one, what ends up happening is after you absorb the water, you dilute your blood sodium levels. And so then your body wants to excrete it. And so if you drink just plain water, you can actually drop your blood volume because your your body is saying, okay, I need to actually diurese. I need to get rid of this extra fluid. And studies have shown that drinking just plain water increases the body's susceptibility to electrically induced muscle spasms and cramps because it dilutes your electrolytes. So it's actually one of the worst things to do to drink plain water prior to performance. And you can actually inhibit vigorous exercise performance as well, drinking plain water, depending on how much you drink, because when you're doing vigorous exercise, which is basically 64% of your VO2 max or higher, gastric emptying, meaning how quickly fluids empty from the stomach to the intestine goes down. And so you actually, if you consume, let's say just five ounces of water every 15 minutes, you will exceed your stomach's ability to dump that water and you will increase and expand the stomach and that can lead to bloating and cramping. And that's been shown to just drinking five ounces of water every 15 minutes and vigorous exercise has been shown to decrease performance by two and a half percent. So not only that, but if you're talking about like a marathon, overconsuming plain water can increase the risk of death due to what's called hyponatremia, basically plummeting sodium levels in the blood. So you got to be really careful just drinking plain water in both endurance exercise and vigorous exercise performance.
0: I experimented this myself or experienced, excuse me, my second marathon I ever ran. This was a few years ago. It was the Austin Marathon. And my thought process going into was I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm hyper hydrated, quote unquote, before going to this race. Because the year prior, I cramped up a lot. And the Austin Marathon has a a bunch of hills, but I cramped up a lot on that marathon. So going into the second marathon, my thought process was, okay, I'm going to hydrate more. So what I did prior to that race is I just drank a gallon of water. And like the day before, the second half of the day, I just drank water. And within the first half of that marathon, I started cramping up like no other when I realized after the race was done was, okay, I, I essentially, I ruined myself. I, I ruined that race because I had no electrolytes in my, my body. I was assuming blood volume decreased and I ruined the race for myself because I thought I was hydrating when in reality I was doing the opposite.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, we'll this is what's interesting too. A lot of MMA fighters will overhydrate to lose weight. They'll drink a ton of water to actually dehydrate themselves and lose weight. And so we got to, and there's a reason for that. Basically drinking a lot of water can flush your body out of a lot of water and reduce blood volume. So there's three basic ways to hydrate. There's from the perspective of, okay, I want to increase my performance later on. Like, I don't care about how I do now. My competition isn't for four weeks. So Practicing what's called dehydration acclimation, where you induce mild dehydration multiple times over, let's say, two weeks, your body becomes acclimated to that dehydration. And part of the hormetic response or the adaptive response is to increase uh, baseline blood volume. Um, And basically, that helps to improve performance later on. So and then you would simply rehydrate with a salt solution. Um, basically as salty as sweat and you, how you do this is you measure your body weight before you perform, and then you see how much fluid you've lost after. And there's a simple formula to figure out how much salt you would need to replace, um, back what was lost. And it's basically 1200 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid is a good starting point for most athletes, um, to replace back. Now, you can get the the, uh, the patches that will test and determine, you know, give you a more accurate measure of how much sodium you're losing, because if you're practicing in the heat, then typically you're going to lose a full teaspoon of salt or 2,300 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid loss. And so that's, that's one way of hydrating. It's called dehydration, acclimation, and then rehydrating after the event. Now, the so that's basically two ways, right? You're, you're using dehydration acclimation, then you're rehydrating with uh, a salt solution, a as sweat. And then prior to competition, or if you feel like you have low energy, utilizing higher salt solutions to boost blood volume will give you the best performance enhancement you can get 10 to 20 times better than any type of performance enhancing supplement like beta alanine or beetroot juice, Salt solutions, if you get the concentration correctly and you consume it correctly, will let you vigorously exercise 10 to 20 times longer than any type of performant pre-workout would let you do.
0: And that's primarily for just the the day of competition.
1: It's primarily for if you're going to have a really hard training session, you probably want to have a salt solution prior to it. Um, And there's varying degrees of this. And certainly before competition, you are going to be at such a a better advantage compared to anyone else by consuming very high doses of salt and fluid. So kind of to just give you like a background here, the linchpin, the main thing that decreases performance is, quote unquote, the relative drop in blood volume that occurs within just five minutes of vigorous exercise, which typically your blood volume drops 8 to 10% feeding the heart because it it now has to flow towards working skeletal muscle, and the blood volume also has to flow to the skin now to dissipate heat. So essentially, you have competition between blood flowing to the heart and now blood flowing to working skeletal muscle and to the skin. So you get this drop of up to 10% in blood volume. So if you can drink salt solutions before competition, and you can boost your blood volume by 8 to 10%, you can then prevent the drop that occurs. And by doing this, you're going to have a larger volume to cool yourself off because we need to understand that we actually pull water from our blood to actually create sweat. So you will have a larger amount of fluid to cool off and dissipate heat. You'll have better cardiac output and blood flow to actually remove waste and to deliver nutrients. And by increasing your blood volume, you decrease myocardial oxygen demand on the heart and the perception of fatigue. You know, you kind of hold your chest sometimes when you work out a lot, literally because your chest is becoming some, and your heart's becoming somewhat ischemic. It's not getting the oxygen delivered through the blood because there's that drop in blood volume. So you boost the blood volume. Now you can deliver a lot more oxygen nutrients to the heart and you don't get that perception of fatigue in that chest pain.
0: I'd be curious because I... I had a 100-mile race uh, early in February. It was a 100-mile ultramarathon here in Texas. And I've never passed out in my life before except for after this race. And I was curious. I mean, I finished this race. I I ran 100 miles in 19 hours, 13 minutes, and obviously exerting a lot of um, effort in the entire 19 hours, right? And I was supplementing with electrolytes, salt, pretty much the entire way through. When I finished the race, I've never seen it like this before, but my hands were swollen, my forearms were swollen, almost around like my, my wedding ring and my watch. And after the race, I I passed out. You know, it was like probably thirty minutes after. And I'm curious if you've ever seen anything like that and if it has to do with a drop in blood volume due to an electrolyte balance.
1: Yeah, there was actually um, experiments performed in the 1940s showing us that if you don't get enough salt, it can lead to um, fluid retention In edema, the exact opposite of what people think. People think that salt leads to um, like an accumulation of fluid, but actually not getting enough salt can do that because salt puts fluid where it should go. And if you don't have enough electrolytes or sodium, which is the primary controller of water movement, then the water can't move to where it needs to go and it pools and you that leads to what's called edema or swelling in the arms and the legs so that's a huge myth that high amounts of salt lead to swelling it's typically low amounts of salt that does that now what's happening too and the reason why you want to con- and i want to talk about kind of how you sh- how you should do this because getting the timing right is important and getting the concentration of salt to fluid is important as well. So, you know, the goal again is to get an 8 to 10% boost in blood volume. Now, if you look at a typical athlete, their blood volume is 40% higher than a, just a, like a typical non-athletic adult. So, a, man, a typical adult man has 5 liters of blood and an adult woman has 4 liters. An elite athlete will have 40% more. So, like, let's say 7 liters of blood. Elite, like highly elite rowers, will have almost twice that. They'll have nine liters of blood volume. So the main adaptation to exercise is an increase in blood volume because that gives you the greatest net return on investment. So you got to figure out a salt solution that would will actually lead to an increase in blood volume. And basically, you need solutions that are as salty as sweat or even more so. Um, So that would essentially be about 3,000 milligrams of sodium, upwards of 4,300 milligrams of sodium in anywhere from 26 ounces to a full liter of fluid, respectively. And you start slowly consuming those salt solutions 90 minutes before competition, and you slowly consume it over about 30 minutes. And then by the time you start competing, your blood volume is peaked, your blood volume is at 8 to 10% higher, and then you're going to reap all of those benefits.
0: Hey guys, I hope you are enjoying this episode so far with Dr. James. And before we dive any deeper into the importance of sodium intake, not just for daily health, but also performance optimization, I want to share with you how I personally add essential electrolytes to my diet every single day. And at this point, we know that proper hydration is more than just drinking water. And that is why we added a high quality electrolyte powder to BPN's product line. Within this product, each serving contains 500 milligrams of sodium from Pink Himalayan Salt, plus a full electrolyte profile per serving. It is naturally sweetened and flavored, and we offer it in three refreshing flavors. Now, I personally add one serving to my post-morning run routine, and then I sip on another one to two servings throughout the day. And if you want to experience the benefits of adding electrolytes to improve your daily hydration... We have a link in the episode description to shop BPN's electrolyte powder. Now let's get back to the show. I'd like to kind of, uh, you know, we did talk about dehydration acclimation. I found that very interesting actually when I was reading your book. Uh, But I'd like to transition into performance in hot and cool environments uh, and some of the benefits of heat acclimation as well. Because like I was telling you previously, one of the things we say here in Texas is summer miles bring fall smiles. And- you know, we're, we're training here, July, August, September, even October, 100 plus degree days and even the mornings are, are humid and hot. And as much as they are uncomfortable and almost unbearable sometimes, we know that as soon as fall hits, you're just cooking through miles. It feels like absolutely nothing, which I'm assuming is part of that heat acclimation. I'd love to kind of talk about the benefits of heat acclimation and how people can achieve these results, these desired results through either running in warmer temperatures or using something like a sauna.
1: Yeah. So the quickest way to become heat acclimated would be to going into the sauna every single day for two weeks, or you can go four times a week um, for three weeks and you'll be heat acclimated. So, that's how you do that. Now, to get down to the more specifics, you need to elevate core body temperature to about 101.3 Fahrenheit, and you want to try and maintain that for 20 to 30 minutes. And when you do that multiple times, you want to get around 12 to 13 total sessions. Now, you're quote-unquote heat acclimated. Now, what does that mean, heat acclimated? Well, what ends up happening is numerous adaptations occur. So, number one, Your baseline blood volume dramatically increases. The concentration of red blood cells goes up so you can deliver more oxygen. Your sweat rate increases. The threshold for you to sweat decreases, meaning you start sweating quicker to cool your body off quicker. Your sweat is also more dilute in electrolytes. So you're not losing as many electrolytes when you're heat acclimated. Now, this is key when you're wet is more dilute, it evaporates faster. So you are literally a better cooling off machine when you are heat acclimated as well. And your baseline core body temperature is lower, meaning it takes a much longer amount of exercise to hit a critical core temperature, which would shut down, let's say muscle activity and lead to fatigue. So you can exercise longer before you actually hit a critical core temp because you're starting at a lower baseline core body temperature. So those adaptations from heat acclimation will last even about two weeks after stopping as long as you maintain a good exercise regimen.
0: So if I'm in a a big endurance block right now, right, like I'm training for a a marathon end of May, Buffalo, New York marathon. If I use the sauna, and we have an infrared sauna at our gym here at our HQ and at my house, if I use an infrared sauna every evening for 30, 45, maybe even an hour, would I experience those benefits throughout this entire prep in terms of uh, a decreased core body temperature, decreased heart rate, which is obviously like one of the things we, we try to achieve with these uh, aerobic base building runs or uh, these lactate threshold runs, uh, increased blood volume. If I did this sauna routine for the, say the, the whole 12, 14, 16 weeks, would I see a massive ROI going into a, a race?
1: So, it depends. You'll absolutely see an improvement if you get a total of, let's say, 10 to 13 sessions within three weeks. So, essentially, four sessions a week for three weeks, or you can go every day for two weeks and you're heat acclimated. If you do it longer than that, that's actually, you'll start actually getting slightly more benefits as long as you rehydrate appropriately afterwards. So, if you're becoming heat acclimated and you're just tanking your electrolytes pool you can actually inhibit performance so you just got to make sure that you're rehydrating really well afterwards with an appropriate amount of electrolytes and fluid
0: and do you find a big difference in a traditional dry sauna as opposed to infrared
1: so the feeling is different but um infrared is more tolerable because you can you can basically get the same amount of sweating at a lower temperature but um, other ways to to become heat acclimated as well would be to like go into to a hot bath numerous times um, uh, a week, like four to five times a week and stay in there for like 20 minutes. But um, you don't have to stay in as long in a hot bath because the water conducts heat two to four times better than air. So you actually will start sweating much faster in like a hot bath versus a sauna. Now, here's the key. I don't recommend actually... Um, doing sauna too soon or too close to competition. I think it's good to have a full week off of it if you can, basically because it's, it is fatiguing and you still retain most of the benefits for a full t- two weeks as long as you maintain a good exercise regimen. So really, ideally, let's say you're um, about to have some type of competition, whether it's a race or an MMA fight, you start four weeks prior you do sauna sessions every day for two weeks, and now you got a two-week gap where you're not losing salt and fluids, you're not fatiguing yourself, but you're still you still have a lot of those adaptational benefits.
0: So both with the dehydration acclimation and the the heat acclimation, the stressors are good for your body. They will provide these adaptations. However, the biggest takeaway is making sure to rehydrate appropriately after these. These periods
1: exactly yeah because here's here's what's interesting we do lose a lot of other electrolytes besides just sodium and chloride which is salt through SWAT we lose iodine at about 50 to hundred micrograms of iodine um, per liter of fluid loss we also lose um, about 40 micrograms of selenium about 0. 0.4 milligrams of copper and about and we also lose some chromium as well and the thing is is When you lose a mineral, some minerals have really low bioavailability that you need to actually consume 100 acts of what you lost to regain it back. And so chromium is one of those. Chromium only has a oral bioavailability from the diet or supplement of only 1%. So if you lose, let's say, 70 micrograms of chromium, or well, sorry, let's say seven micrograms. Cause that's typically what you lose about seven per hour. You got to consume 700 micrograms to get it back. Cause you're only absorbed 1% through the diet. So that's why it gets a little tricky of, okay, heat acclimation is great. But if I do this like a lot, how, how many, how much minerals am I actually wasting? You just got to make sure you're getting them all back.
0: So diving into, you know, after, uh, after Performance in Hot and Cool Environments and in Heat Acclimation, um, I'd really like to talk about optimizing sleep behaviors and regulating circadian rhythm. So, you know, reading your book, uh, there's a lot of things I've a- I've actually implemented this past year that I've seen a huge return on. One, uh, sleeping in a-, in a cooler temperature. So I use this pad, it's a, a chilly sleep pad, it's like called the Oler. Essentially, I fill it with water at night and it circulates cold water in my bed and I sleep at 59 degrees because what I was finding was I used to wake up in the middle of night drenched in sweat, super sweaty. Once I started cooling down how how I was sleeping and where I was sleeping, my sleep improved dramatically. Started blocking blue light in the evening, um, started spending, and I always find like in the summer when I'm outside in the sun more, especially in the mornings and the runs, uh, I sleep better. So what are some of the things that we can do to optimize sleep, but really regulate circadian rhythm? And with that being said, I got into a bunch of biohacking things this past year and just testing and seeing what was working and how it affected me. I also found that using red light therapy also really helped regulate my circadian rhythm. So what are some of the things that we can do to optimize sleep behaviors?
1: Yeah, so red light is going to be higher um, in the sun spectrum early on in the morning and in the evening, whereas you have more UV in the midday. So the two best things to help set circadian rhythm and improve sleep are basically the same thing. Get morning sunlight, turn lights off at night. You do those two things, you're going to set your circadian rhythm how we have always done for millions of years, rising with the sun. Falling asleep when there's no lights on because we didn't have electricity. You have to try to match your light patterns to how our body our body has evolved because our bodies don't realize that we're in this twenty first century, you know, society of just fake blue light and all these other things that are blasting us um, and messing up our circadian rhythms. So if you can get outside for ten minutes upon waking um, and get some good morning sunlight. And then also to make sure to turn off all the lights at night. Like my neighbors, they all make fun of our house because our house is just completely dark, essentially um, at, at, by like six p.m. Um, that's key, though. That's really key. I mean, you can keep some lights on, but they have to be like low, like really low hanging lights that aren't just like really messing up your um, your uh, circadian rhythm. And when you do that, what ends up happening is. The release of melatonin will happen much sooner and it'll be much greater by getting morning sunlight and turning the lights off at night. And that's going to allow you to sleep better.
0: So if we, you were to use a, uh, a red light therapy, would you use that in the morning because of that that reason?
1: Yeah, you got to be careful of using red light too close to, um, to sleep. But if you use it like, let's say five o'clock, six o'clock, kind of matching like a sunset, um, that actually might help sleep. But you got to kind of test it out yourself and see because, you know, how close are you to the red light? Is there a different um, in- infrared in it as well? Um, how bright is it? Will depend on how it'll affect you. I personally don't think you can always 100% mimic nature and mimic the sun. If you can actually go out and look um, and sort of like get some light at sunset, that will probably be better for you than trying to mimic it through red light therapy.
0: I know you talk about this a lot on social media in terms of insomnia and people having trouble sleeping. Yeah. What do you think the biggest issues are in the world and society right now that are contributing to people not being able to sleep?
1: Well, this is interesting. It's hard to say, right? Um, exactly. But I've had a lot of people, and I've talked based, based on a lot of my research and publications on a compound called Inositol, Inositol is essentially just, it's something we make from glucose, but we don't do it very well anymore because of numerous factors. We need magnesium to actually make this compound. Um, we get depleted of it through coffee and caffeine and, and numerous other things. So a lot of us are deficient in this compound. And I'm telling you, just taking inositol, like one to two grams twice a day, nine out of 10 people that I've put on inositol have their REM, their deep sleep goes from 30 minutes to like two hours and 30 minutes. Like they sleep like the dead on this stuff. So they stay asleep and it's the deepest sleep they've ever gotten. And part of it is because inositol allows uh, neurotransmitters to be released in the brain, like serotonin, which eventually turns into melatonin. So if you want to release the precursor to melatonin so you can fall asleep, you need inositol compounds to do that. And if you're deficient in it and you take this supplement, um, it can triple, quadruple your deep sleep.
0: In terms of blue light, I, I saw in your book that you mentioned blue light can be good in the mornings. However, blue lights should be blocked in the evenings. What is the, the theory or the concepts of introducing blue light in the morning? Is that to regulate that circadian rhythm?
1: Yeah. So it's like light isn't bad in the day. It's all and and it's really all light at night that's bad. It's not just blue, green, violet, any type of bright light is terrible for your sleep. If it's, let's say within two to three hours of you actually having to try to fall asleep. So you want to, you know, blocking out blue light is fine, but really turning off lights or dimming lights is actually a better strategy because you're going to be blocking all spectrums of light, which can inhibit melatonin release um, before bedtime.
0: Right. I'd assume that's the issue with a lot of the world though, is that most people before they go to bed or they're watching TV for an hour or two, or they even fall asleep with the TV on. And I'd assume that's just a a massive, Or I mean, they're on their phones or computers or constantly working. Do you shut off completely like you don't look at any screens last two to three hours before going to bed, or at least try to.
1: Um, so I try not to look at my phone, hundred percent. And if I am watching TV, um, I basically am pretty far away from it, where it's not super bright and messing up my sleep.
0: It's interesting. You made this post on uh, on social media the other day that I loved. Um, I mean, a lot a lot of the stuff you post from like Twitter and then repost to instagrams is gold this one was the modern mistakes of nutrition one blaming salt for what sugar did two blaming fat for what sugar did three blaming butter for what margarine did four blaming cholesterol for what inflammation did five blaming eggs for what toast did and six blaming bacon for what cereal did how do we with that being said how do we as a society as a world go back to what we used to consume and eat with everyone telling us what we were eating was bad, but maybe what we were eating was good. It's just what was introduced was not taking the necessary blame that it needed. For example, like introducing margarine instead of, and then butter gets the blame. What are the next steps we can do as as a country, as a world, to kind of fix some of these myths and mistakes?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with information, just getting people to understand that, you know, basically eating how we used to eat, how we used to, you know, consume wild meats and and forage for the foods that naturally exist, going back to a diet that, you know, you either pick the food from the earth or you hunt, you know, the food that's, you know, subsisting on the earth is going to be so much better than to consuming these processed concoctions. And so helping to support regenerative farmers that actually help um, increase, you know, basically carbon storage because they're improving the actual land um, using, you know, things like grass-fed meats and, and things like that. That's important. So I think people need to understand that it's not the foods that we've consumed for 2 million years that got us to this bad place in our health. It's Within the last hundred years, all the processed foods—that is what's really damaging.
0: A few months ago, I watched this documentary. It's called "Kiss the Ground" on Netflix. I'm not sure if you you've seen it or heard of it. No. And that really introduced me to regenerative farming and agriculture. I grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, central Pennsylvania. Farms everywhere, dairy farms, Amish communities, and it wasn't really being practiced. And and. You know, moving out of Texas and learning more about it, I didn't realize how how it was growing, becoming popular. Where there's regenerative farms all around me now that that are offering grass-fed meats and and doing some really good practices in terms of their farming techniques to regenerate what was lost and, and kind of bringing soil back to life, turning dirt back into soil. So it is cool to see people actively practicing and approaching it. Some of the pushback I've received from my end of kind of bringing some of this to light in life is people assume that regenerative farming or these new techniques that are that are better and good are "quote unquote" tree hugging or hippie, and I think that's where the stereotypes are kind of ruining it. Is no, this is this is the way we need to move. This is the direction that we have to go to improve what we've almost broken or disrupted the last. Couple decades,
1: yeah, one hundred percent. Because it's it, the conversation is more than just nutrition; it's about the sustainability of this food supply. And really, when it comes to landmass, regenerative farming is really the way forward.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how it evolves and, and how it grows in uh, you know America and, and greater. Well, Doctor James, greatly appreciate it. Uh, it's like I said; it's been refreshing following your content on social media and reading your books. I highly recommend uh, everything you've put out there. The last two I've read, The Salt Fix and Win, are just stellar information. And it's in that content that's easily digestible. And there's a lot of key takeaways that you can implement right away and just improve aspects and parts of your life and see a massive return in a matter of sometimes immediately or days or weeks and months. But uh, it's great content and I really appreciate you.
1: Thanks, Nick. I appreciate you too. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to if you enjoyed it. It helps us to grow and reach more people with the intent of changing lives through the Go One More mindset. If you are ready to take your health and performance to the next level, head over to bpnsubs.com to take the first step. We offer a wide range of effective supplements to help you perform at your highest level built on quality and proven by results without compromise.